0: This is episode five of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel
1: Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll teach you online business better than your
2: multiplication tables. They'll give you step by step guides for every kind of business you desire.
0: They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your hosts, Preston Pish and
1: Stig Burderson.
0: Hey, 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 how's everybody doing? This is uh, Preston Pish, uh, and I'm accompanied by my co host, Stig Broderson. And today we have another uh, special guest with us. Um, today it is Greg Pisani. And uh, Greg has some time working on the New York Stock Exchange. And today's interview with Greg, we're going to be talking about what it's like to be on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and kind of all the things that happen to a trader. So. Uh, Let's go ahead and just uh, start this off. Greg, uh, go ahead and uh, tell us something about yourself and just kind of give us a little bit of background.
1: Sure. Good morning, everybody. So um, my work on New York Stock Exchange and and for the specialist firms that trade the stock was actually my second full-time career after college. I worked in the film business for a while um, in New York City, worked on some TV shows, worked on movies with Kiefer Sutherland, Michael J. Fox, some older actors, Jason Robards, Uh, Susie Kurtz. I did that for about five years and then the work in New York kind of dried up. There was a little bit of a conflict between the New York and uh, Los Angeles unions that um, basically work on all the different films. Uh, So, it was a little tough to get work and a a friend of mine said, hey, maybe you want to work on Wall Street. And I was like, all right, well, sounds interesting, right? I came from one interesting, diverse career where you saw a lot of different things on a day-to-day basis and... uh, so I gave it a shot. I, so you uh, didn't
0: go there initially to do that. You you went there to do the movie business and just kind of f- fell into the the yeah. I stuff.
1: you know my I, I was always into making movies. My um, my minor in in, in college was uh, film and still photography. So always had a love of, of movies, right? And um, so so I did that for about five years. And my friend and my brother kept on with that for a while, and then and I just so I didn't see see a lot of future and for myself, so wasn't like dedicated to camera work or or something else. So uh, you know when the Wall Street opportunity came up, I kind of took it. So my first job was working as a basically an assistant to two dollar brokers, right? And the two dollar brokers are the brokers that are kind of independent from the big firms like Merrill Lynch. and they would basically take work from those bigger brokerage houses and they would go work the pit because there's never enough brokers on the floor. To represent Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs or what have you. So they would farm out the work. It was almost like contractors in our current uh,
0: career. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you would use them to go do the work. And, and they would work the, the different um, specialist booths. And literally, they were booths where the fir- firms, the different firms would hold the stocks and trade them, right? So I was a, a clerk for this firm.
0: What does the $2 broker thing mean? I, I don't follow.
1: Well, I think it's more of a more of a euphemism than it is anything, right? So, I think at one time it meant that they got two dollars per trade that they did when the, the firm <laughs> first started, right? Somebody told me that. I don't know if it's urban myth or whatnot, but for the most part, you know, they were they were contracted out, officially unofficially, to do additional trading for the bigger firms above and beyond what their capacity was to do it, right?
0: did they do that model so that they could flex their size? So like if they needed, uh, you know, like in high volume times, maybe for a certain year, the volume would be very high so that they could kind of flex and get rid of the, that extra uh, fat. After I'd like the- to
1: say yes, but I don't think it was as strategic, to be very honest with okay. you. You, know, you think of Wall Street as being this well-oiled machine. And as we see, as we go on in, in, the, in the discussion here, it was pretty chaotic for the most part. Yeah, You know, I, I think some of that was yes. And some of that, they were not as um, rigorous in how they did things. So, you know, it was probably a little give and take, you know.
0: All right. So, Keep going. Cause I don't want to, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't no. want my questions to hold you up. <laughs> no, it's
1: fine. So, so it did that for a short amount of time. And then um, I don't really know how, but the, the biggest specialist firm on the floor, the, the firms that actually control the trading of the stocks was Spearleads and Kellogg and um, they were hiring. And so uh, I really wasn't digging the $2 broker job. There wasn't a lot going on. You were just basically answering phones, taking orders and handing it, passing them off to the, to the brokers. So I, I went into spear leads um, for an interview. Basically it was, uh, you know, what have you done? I hadn't done much and, and a math test. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really didn't do well in, in math and, and school academically. But when it came to monetizing math, right the way we probably should be taught, um I really got it. So the test that they gave us uh, was dollars and cents and everything trades in fractions at least on the New York, right It's more decimal points on the NASDAq. So I did well and they you know I could I could communicate. and so I uh, started off as a, a specialist clerk and then moved my way up the ranks. So that's how I got into the specialist firm and Leads was big. They had they had a big operation. Um, things changed over the years, you know, up until today, and I believe Goldman bought them at this point. Um, but you know, there was a lot of opportunities, a lot of stocks, right? Everything from small companies you never heard of to IBM. And so, you know, spent eight years there, four years on the uh, New York, and then their American operation. Uh, and the American mostly traded options at the time, but there were stocks being traded there as well. Uh, it wasn't as automated as the New York. So they were looking to expand their operation there. And so I went over there, there was a small specialist operation there. Like I said, it was probably, you know, 60, 75% options and and some stocks, you know, lesser value stocks that didn't make it to the New York. So it was more opportunity for growth there. So that's that, why I,
0: I find that really interesting about the options yeah. I mean 75% of the, wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Greg, uh,
3: let me actually ask you, because you know, i really, I'm really delighted that you're on this show. Uh, I used to be a commodities trader myself, so uh, it's really interesting uh, to talk to a guy like you. And as you probably know, this is really a world that a lot of pe- uh, a few people get to experience firsthand. Sure. But there's a lot of myth about working on Wall Street. Um, I don't know if that's because there are so many money involved. But uh, but Greg, how do you? Um, would you like to tell us about a typical day? I mean, how is it? Uh, a typical day on Wall Street.
1: So, so I think the the day is it's kind of interesting. You know, you, you make your way down to downtown, right? Whether it was the New York or the American, doesn't really matter. Everybody gets their their little breakfast, right? Uh, mine was coffee and a muffin. You get to the booth, right? You're standing all day, right? You're not uh, you're not sitting at a desk. And these were literally booths. The ones on the New York were were circular or oval, and you're behind the the counter. The ones on the American were like a long counter style, almost like a delicatessen. Um
0: How big's the and, room? Is the room like about the size of a football field or something?
1: So you know, it looks bigger than it is, but I believe the New York's main room is pretty large. It's probably half the size of a football field. Okay. But it actually is multiple rooms. And I I'm 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 presuming because over the years it expanded because more stocks came in, right? Yeah. Um, so they basically had to build more rooms out, and the American is not like that. The American was one huge space with some smaller areas that were non-trading areas, and it was a big building. You know, above that's all offices, right? And a lot of them are are the you know, SEC offices. Firms have offices, so you know. But it's um, each each place is a little different, you know. So so you'd get you'd come in, and the day before you basically reconciled. The, the accounting for the stocks that the firm bought, right? Because you also buy and sell for your firm because you have to make money, right? And the only way you do that is buying and selling the stock for which you trade. And most of the, um, let's call it-
0: Regardless stations, of the price, it's just the transaction. Is, exactly, is, Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. So, you know, there's stations, right? And each station has, um, in my day, they had very simple, almost look like the old Apple um, Macintosh computer screens. Black background with green text for the, for the, the price range for the stocks.
0: Dinosaurs and the, outside and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then, <laughs> then we had regular computers behind us. And they basically were anything we'd want to look at, like Bloomberg's or whatever was going on as far as news, news feeds.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right? Um, at the time, when I changed over from New York to American, American was still on paper. Um, so you got both electronic orders and paper orders oh, spitting wow. out of this. I, mean, I don't even remember what the name of the, the, the machine was that spit out the orders, but it had a name. And the Ameri- and the New York was was fully automated, right? Okay. Uh, with more modern technology, because you know, yeah, money was really mo- there,
0: yeah, right? Yeah.
1: Um. So you'd get in. You you had paper books that had carbon copies. Um, below them. And uh, two sheets, the main sheet and the carbon copy, because that was your record. And basically the top sheet you tore each day or during the day you sent up to the basically the trading floor for the specialist firm where they would reconcile the trades that you made on behalf of the company. And so you'd get ready. You know, you'd start looking at the, the screens, see where the stock closed. Orders were able to come in, right? So if it closed at, let's say, round number $10, you'd get orders coming in at um, nine and seven eighths, you know, nine and five eighths, nine and a half, because it's all traded in eighths. Um, and then you'd get in orders coming in at 10 and an eighth, 10 and a qu- you know, quarter, you know, up and down the range. And then, then you'd have stuff meet in the middle and that's where you most likely open the stock when the bell rang, right, at 9.30. So it's all preparation, so you kind of see what's going on. And if there's news, it will impact what's going, what's going on as well. But each of the stations you know, had a broker and some had a clerk as well and um you could have anywhere from one stock which would mean that it's something busy like IBM on the New York was one stock traded with one broker and one clerk so no, it was so busy when i was there
0: that oh, they they, they weren't handled, yeah they weren't handling multiples they were just handling that one pick
1: impossible wow um and then but then you'd have you know someone who had three stocks maybe they had an AIG and a couple of smaller firms um then, or someone else had Boeing, because it was one of the stocks uh, they had as well, uh, Spear Leeds. Um, or on, on the American, I think at one point we had up to 10 stocks at a station. So, you know, you're not talking about high volume, or yeah. high dollar. It could be, you know, something that's trading at a dollar, $2, $3. So, Greg, you could have a few more.
2: let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offering next-level comfort and refinement and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You you said
0: early on that the, so you're looking at the buy and sell orders, and then yep. you, you as the, the manager of that was kind of picking at where that was going to open up based on exactly. where things were.
1: Yeah. Huh. So you could, so, and it's all based on your position too, right? So that's where some of this stuff we'll get into as you move move along in the questions that while we think that everything is fluid and it's based on the economy and news and stuff, the specialist broker has a lot of control. It's almost like, you know, wrangling cattle. You know, you can let them run free in Rome or you could actually pen them up in certain areas and, and, and control them. So and it's based on your position, especially if you bought a ton of stock. The day before, or the few days before, yeah. and all of a sudden you see there's bad news, a lot of sell orders coming in, whatever. Yeah, it's going to push it down. And then you're going to be like, "Oh man, you know, I really, I'm, I'm holding the uh, fifty thousand shares of this or whatever. What do I? What am I going to do here?" So you could open the stock up. You know, you can't, uh, you couldn't buy stock on a straight uptick or plus, right? Because you know. You, you had to let other folks generate the initial uptick, then you could buy, uh, right? And the same thing on a downtick, right? On a, on a minus, you can't sell, um, on the first minus tick down, um, because it just they're just policies and guidelines that that control yeah. it for the specialist firm. You have to have someone else. Now you could be part of a buy or sell, but you cannot initiate it. Like if I know the stock's going to go up, you know, I can't buy everything at the next, uh, you know, if there's-
3: yeah, 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 yeah. That you guys understand? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, how long were you typically holding on to the stocks? I mean, it sounds like it was hardcore trading. So, it, it, it was clearly yeah. not one of those uh, Warren Buffett hold for ten years <laughs> kind of thing you were doing.
1: Not at all. So, th- this is this is probably the most you know. It's like uh, investors on ADHD or whatever. Just, <laughs> <laughs> right? The floor is not. Oh, like personal investing, that's why I say it is a microcosm, and you don't really understand it until you work there that that markets are changed and shifted, especially in small firms, you know it, there was a lot more flexibility because the level of scrutiny on an IBM, you could not do that right?
0: yeah, because of the volume probably, of trade
1: probably yeah um, I forgot what they used to call the uh, the guys on the floor that used to work for the firm work for this uh, the exchange that would monitor that, right. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, and the, and the bigger the stock, the more volatile the stock, the more important the stock, the, the more scrutiny you got in terms of, you know, what you can and can't do.
0: Yeah. So Greg, the, I mean, just listen to this. I mean, there was a lot of stress going around. So, yeah. um, how do you, how would you deal with that stress on a day-to-day basis? I mean, is, is it as stressful as it sounds or is it not, not as bad as you know. it sounds or what?
1: It's on you. Know, basically, I, I would say for the most part, it's not the stocks, the trading, it's not the um, you know any of that sort of thing, the mechanics of it. It's the people, right? So it's the other brokers, it's the you know the job you have to do for the firm you work for. Uh, when things get busy, uh, people act stupid, you know. <laughs> um, so for the most part, I handled it well. Um, I, I can say the one time that. The stress level got pretty high, had nothing to really do. It was a busy stock. I think it was Cheyenne, which was a software company that um, could, could do a couple million dollars of, of shares in a day. That was on the American. You know, one time I remember everyone getting kind of crazy and another broker who worked for the firm coming over trying to, an older guy was trying to get in my my stuff, right? And then there was a huge crowd out in front of me. And I basically stopped trading and told everyone to shut the.
3: <laughs> up. You did,
0: yeah. I
1: just I, so I mean, do that yeah. today in an office environment in ours, eh, probably not. But yet <laughs> for there, no one really thought anything of it other than they shut up, and because they were basically impacting our, my ability to trade, right? Yeah. So not That's only so for true. the for the firm, but for their orders, orders are coming in. They're they're throwing them down paper orders were the worst thing to have to deal with because they were handwritten and you had to figure out you know i have a hundred thousand shares at a certain price you know so <laughs> Wrong that comma. was probably the most <laughs> stressful day i still recall other than that i don't really recall anything you know if it was bad enough we would probably go out for a drink afterwards and, and that and kind <laughs> of forget about it because what trading day and trading day ends. there's yeah. no homework
3: right yeah yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah yeah well let me ask greg um well, I think you lasted longer in the game than I did. I was uh, 28 when I quit. And yeah. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I was not one of the... Uh, clearly, I wasn't one of the old guys, but I wasn't one of the young guns either, even though right. I was only 28. Because um, trading is really uh, a young sure. man's game. Um, but what was your experience? I mean, how many years did you experience your coworkers workers to, uh, to hang in there?
1: Well, you know, people have different reasons for staying there, you know you got guys who would want to work their way up the chain and either were, were were favorites, they weren't favorites. There's a lot of that going on. I mean, it's about as old boy network as you get, right? So, um, but on the other side, uh, you know, so I had friends on the New York Stock Exchange before I ever got there. So um, when I came in, there was a bunch of young folks came in as clerks and then moved up through the ranks and the older guys were still there for the firm and they stayed there for the firm. They were there. They were long timers, Right. So, and I don't know how long, but I do know personally a, a family friend that I grew up with uh, from gosh, what age, I don't know, Jim uh Jim Henderson who owned uh, Henderson Brothers which was probably the biggest small firm on the New York. Um him, his sons were all there and he's he was a very well respected man. That guy spent, I'm guessing his whole, entire life there. Um and still there and still has friends that worked for, they were absorbed by another company. So, um, but yeah, so you'd get people that come in and couldn't handle it and left. And then you'd have people who would, for the most part, you know, stick it out for a career. uh, And then So it
0: was kind of a split, you know, you'd see. It was, it was, it was a
1: wide range, right? Yeah. It was tough to sink your teeth into for the most part. So um, you really had to be in it. And I guess you had to have a certain demeanor not let it get to you because uh, for the most part, people did get kind of hot and, and bothered about certain aspects of the trading. But for the most part, I'd say you had a range of, of longevity in that business.
0: Okay. So, uh, Greg, so I got a question for you. Uh, for a lot of people, they might not understand the reason why people even exist on the on the floor of the exchange sure. anymore. Like, Why not just have uh, everything like the NASDAQ where it's all electronically traded at this point?
1: You know, so it's interesting. I guess NASDAQ, I'm not sure when NASDAQ came into existence, but it was might have been either shortly before I got on the floor or while I was on the floor, and a lot of people questioned, you know, how are they're going to do that electronically and so on and so forth. I guess I think there's two answers, right? One is having a human down there to monitor the situation outside of the trading gives it a little bit more connection to people who invest, you know, retail, right? You send in an order, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, however you, whoever you use, uh, filters through their retail desk down to the floor. Um, A Merrill Lynch broker gets the order. You're part of another thousands of orders, shares of, say, you're going to go buy an IBM, right? You know, someone comes in with a, you come in with a hundred shares, someone comes in with a thousand, it gets all put together person goes to the booth with 100,000 shares, they know they're not gonna buy it over $100 or what have you, and they sit and they work it. So the machines can't really work the trade. The, the orders come in, they get paired up, and, and they're done, right? So you, you would literally have to break up orders into increments of different dollars where you know a, a, a broker would come in and see what's going on and determine that they should jump in now, buy it all, maybe um break it up over the course of the next half hour or hour or step mm. back. The stock's going, you know, too high, not worth buying at this point, right? So Let they watch. have the
0: ability to kind of personalize it more. Exactly. And they can, they and can look over at the booth and they see a big line of all sell orders and they're like, okay, well this isn't Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Electronic order is that's all it is, right? Uh, there's no control over that. Yeah. Um, it's very automated, right? There's no there's no artificial intelligence system that Controls those orders that come in and, and monitor. It's very mechanical. So, and I don't know exactly all the inner workings of NASDAQ, but essentially that's what it is. Yeah, and and so plus, um, you know.
0: So would it be safe to say that if you were a an investor that had a very large sum of money that was putting down on a particular stock, you would want that human interaction to, to be would. the interface to make sure that you're getting it at the price point and maybe even take advantage of an opportunity if you saw. An opportune time to even get it at a better price than what they had initially uh, said. Exactly, exactly. So you're kind of getting that custom touch by going. Yeah. Through, so yeah.
1: So it works. It works for the. It works for the specialist firms, and it also works for um, you know big investors who have you know folks on the floor that can say you know I'm buying a you know a thousand shares of IBM or, or more, more. Um, but hey, look, AIG is going going wild. Maybe I need my guy to go over there and buy something else, right?
3: Okay, Greg, you know, I've been really looking forward to asking you this question because uh, clearly working on Wall Street is a, is a subculture, yes. uh, but hopefully you can give us a rare insight. Um, could you share the funniest story that you have experienced on Wall Street?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the one that comes to mind, other than the one of me screaming at all the other brokers because it wasn't funny at the time, <laughs> uh, was uh, I don't even know what was going on. You know, it was a busy day. We had a couple of old timers on the American working with us. Uh, You know, this was their whole life. And uh, they were very, I don't know, very rigid, jaded, structured, set in motion. And we brought in some younger guys, younger than me at the time, because I I was in my, um, I might have been 30, 31 when I was on the floor, I think somewhere around that age when I started. So we had a couple of younger guys, which who were. Not as disaffected as today's generation, but uh, didn't quite get the older guys, right? And I did, and I had a good rapport with them. So something was happened one day, and this got young guy, I don't even remember his name. I, I remember his face, was uh, Was the clerk for one of the older guys, who, who stood, to the two older guys stood next to each other, right? And something happened. He got mouthy with them. And something to do with trading should have done this, should have done that. I don't know what. So he called one of them. Not, he didn't curse at him, but he's called him something. I think the last guy's name was uh, Mattricelli and he, and he was he- a big heavy guy and he called him Mattress belly. And so the dude, <laughs> right? So the well, Mattress belly, he basically tried to grab the kid. He took off and our post was like I said, like a deli counter. Well, the two of them are running around the counter on the middle of the trading floor yelling at each other. Somebody had to intervene and to stop it. And there you were. Yeah, it was. And there you were. Like, I mean, where does that happen? Right in an office? It doesn't. No way. Nobody thought too much of it. Sounds like a
0: cartoon.
1: It was. It was pretty comical. Uh, And obviously, he never caught him. The guy was the older, heavy guy.
0: That's, you had to go lay down on a mattress afterwards. <laughs>
1: yeah. it's pretty Oh, funny. yeah. Yeah. It was, that was probably one of the funnier things that happened. Oh, there was geez. probably many, but you know, you we were talking, I left the floor in the 90s. So <laughs> I have distinct memories of certain things, but other stuff I've it, moved on kind of. So. <laughs> that was pretty humorous. Let's take
2: a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say hard to do. That's Fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account while we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US? Dot com slash wsb. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wsb now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash wsb. All right, back to the show.
0: Oh, nice. So, and people might not realize this, but Greg. So, Greg works for the government now, and he uh, handles all the finances for a uh, acquisition office. And he handles over a billion dollars a year, so Greg is quite accomplished. Uh, he's he's moved on to uh, a lot of uh, uh, different things since working on Wall Street, where he had his own business. And now he's doing this, and uh, so he's got a, a lot of really kind of neat stories. But um, so I'm going to go to the uh, next one here. This is the one that Stig and I like to ask uh, all the different people that come on the show. But what's the best ev- uh, investing advice that you have ever received, Greg?
1: So. I would have to say, and I wish I could remember this guy's name. He was on the New York Stock Exchange. He was one of our senior uh, specialist brokers. Uh, maybe it'll come to me. Uh, Italian guy. But this guy was a cool cucumber, man. He was like, he reminded me of uh, who Chaz Palmentari a little bit, but an older version of him. Uh, and he was always calm. And his thing was, be patient. Just be patient, whether it was trading for the firm for spear leads, whether it was trading for himself, he just, his demeanor was calm and and cool and collected. Um, and basically that was just who he was. And, and, and that was, so be patient.
0: I love that. Yeah. I'm serious. I, I love that advice. Um, yeah. And just in, in, in just in your normal day life yeah. too. Like not even t- talking about investing. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Great. And that's how he was. I mean, you you saw this. He was suave. Yeah. Well-dressed. I mean.
0: I need to be more like, like that.
1: tinted sunglasses <laughs> on. Right? Just like gradient, gradient <laughs> sunglasses. So I think his, his name was Joe and it was something Italian. I can't remember. But the guy was, I wow. just like, remember him. I love and that. Be patient.
3: Wow. That's really good advice.
1: Yeah, for anything, yeah. right? I mean, no matter what you're oh, doing, yeah. before you make a decision, when you buy and hold something and watch it, you know. So,
3: yeah. Well, Greg, let me ask this of you. Um, we really like to uh, to discuss great books and especially sure. investment books. Um, do you have any books that have influenced you, perhaps in particular, that you think our audience would uh, appreciate?
1: Sure, and I'm going back to um, this guy again, Joe. Right. So he used to carry this one large book around, right? Large hardcover book, a little torn and tattered. And um, he didn't talk a lot, but, uh, you know, I worked for him for a little while or right next to him for a little while. And, and I asked him, you know, what is that? And no one ever even asked him, you know, what that book is. I guess the other senior investors knew what it was, but it was, um, and I looked it up. Uh, I haven't thought about it for a while, except for a couple of times in my current job. Um so it was called Japanese candlestick charting techniques, and the author is Steve Nissan N I S O N, right? So I, I I didn't know what it was at the time, and and Joe shared it with me. And Basically, what it was is um, it's a, a it's a, a technical approach to pattern analysis, um, for. And I looked this up pretty much for any type of security, derivative, currency, what have you, right? Any type of um, traded thing. Um, and, and so basically, they, th- they think it was first used in the 1800s in Japan um, by rice traders, right? Uh, they developed this technique. And I don't know all the history of it, but basically it was, it was a pattern occurs over time. The more dated that you pull together. So one of the little excerpts from the book, and I went back and looked at this, was that if you had a, had ten candles in a row and you lit them all at the same time, they would burn differently, right? But then if you put another ten next to that, and another ten, another ten, a pattern would come out, right? So it's interesting because I didn't quite understand it back then. Um, it was kind of philosophical, right? It was a little highbrow, and that's why this dude was right. He was very Like you said, very cool, very interesting approach to things. Um, And this was his kind of way he did stuff. But you can't use it alone in a vacuum. I think you have to combine it with other analytical tools. Yeah. Because it's not in itself. You need something to, to feed that to determine the pattern.
0: It's just so everyone in the audience knows. So, everyone knows Stig and I are extremely hardcore Warren Buffett, long term value investors. They would buy a pick and hold it as long as we possibly can. And I think what Greg is talking about here is something that could be beneficial to a person who, you know, if you're listening to us and you're more of a short term investor or something like that, the book might be a fantastic tool. And even if you're not, I think the book might be something that's interesting to consider just so you kind of understand that aspect of it. Right. You know, I'm of the opinion that the more vantage points that you understand about a particular area of interest, the more informed you are and the more intelligent you, you become and, and you can make better and more informed decisions. So um, you know, reading something like that and, and understanding the pattern analysis, and even if you were applying it to boom-bust cycles... You know, if you were looking at, okay, what is the critical variable or some of the critical variables that causes the market to collapse? You know, I'm of the opinion that interest rates is probably one of the biggest critical variable for that to happen. So, um, you know, you could apply that, some of maybe the things that you'd learn in that book that that Greg's highlighting to the pattern analysis of how interest rates work and and how they interact with the market. You know, very interesting.
1: Right. So you can marry up three things or interest rates. Earnings, you know, and then something particular to the industry. And then you'll probably see a pattern within the patterns, right? And if you layer them together. So I I just found that really interesting. And, uh, you know, it's a level of detail you could apply to short term, long term, um, and and almost in anything where there's a consistent occurrence of something.
0: Okay. So, uh, Greg. I uh, really appreciate everything that you've uh, taught us and, and talked about. I mean, it's really uh, interesting to be able to talk to somebody who's been there and done that on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, really appreciate that. Um, Pleasure. At, at this point, Stig and I are going to go ahead and answer one of the questions that we had that came in on the website. Uh, and if anyone out there wants to uh, send us a question and get it potentially answered on the show, uh, go to asktheinvestors.com. And uh, you can submit your question either by recording it and sending it to us, or you can type it up and send it to us. This one was typed up and sent. Um, If you are going to record your question, try to make it as concise as possible and uh, quick and to the point, because uh, if it's too long, it's going to be hard for us to play it on the air. So uh, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and read this question. It comes from Brandon Klein. And uh, Brandon's question is, if we were planning to hold a stock forever, as Warren Buffett likes to say, and we've decided we can predict that the business will do well, say like 10 to 15% growth per year into the future, is it really that important to buy the stock at a discount to its intrinsic value? Because the stock price in IV will grow or the intrinsic value will grow year by year. So uh, Stig's going to go ahead and answer the question.
3: Well, first of all, Brandon, let me just say that it's a really great question um, you're asking here. And it also gives me the opportunity to reiterate that the most important attribute for a stock is really the quality of a business. And I also think that was your point, Brandon. Um, you probably know the famous quote by Warren Buffett who was saying that he would much rather buy a wonderful business for a fair price than a fair company for a wonderful price. And I think that really much, uh, pretty much captured this. But one thing I had to add here is that Warren Buffett, while he advocates that you should hold the stock forever, he actually rarely does that himself. And I'm not really saying that Warren Buffett is a hypocrite, uh, not at all. But what he's actually saying is that you should have the mindset that you want to hold the stock forever. And the major reason for that is that you'll have to pay uh, capital gains tax whenever you're selling the stock. So uh, so that's definitely uh, an important uh aspects to, uh, to think about. But uh, let me give you an example of what it is that Morgan Buffett is talking about when he's speaking about buying a stock at a discount to the intrinsic value. Uh, for instance, let's say that you buy a stock at a fair price and you expect it to, uh, to get a an 10% annual return. By a fair price, again, that is related to the quote, that is equivalent to the intrinsic value. So you're saying... The price of the stock is $10, and that is also the the value of the stock. And say that you want to hold that stock for 10 years. But if you bought that stock at a 50% discount to the intrinsic value, you would get close to 18% annual return instead of the 10% over that time period. Um, And really 18% compared to 10% over the the long run, that really means the world. I've got something I
0: want to piggyback on to what Stig said, because he's exactly right. So if you can buy it, let's say you think it's worth $10 and you can get a 10% return using a discount rate that would give you that $10 price point. If you can go ahead and buy it at $5, okay, you are able to increase that return significantly. okay. And what you're doing when you do that, it's almost like you're able to warp yourself back in time. It's almost like you could say, if I would buy Berkshire Hathaway right now, I know that it's trading for like $135, $140 right now. But if I can buy that at $100, that's almost like I went back three, four years ago and was able to buy the stock at that point in time. And so then you're able to basically get more compound interest out of it. So that's just a different way to look at it But. Um, I mean, if you can buy something for a 10% yield, that's fantastic or expected 10% yield. But if you can buy it at even cheaper price, you'll even get a higher yield. So uh, that's, I guess, the best way we can answer your question, Brandon. And we really appreciate you typing that up and sending it to us. So we're going to send you a free signed copy of the uh, Warren Buffett accounting book. um, And uh, we just really hope to have more questions like that in the future and, and to be able to interact with the audience. So that concludes our show for today. Again, we want to say uh, thanks to Greg Pisani for joining us and uh, we hope to see you next week with our next episode. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. P.I.P.